0: Father, we do uh, lift up our brothers and sisters around the country and around the world who are facing different types of challenges here, and um, Lord, in the midst of all the other challenges going on to lose um, uh, their pastor over at Moberly, Lord, I pray that you would pour out grace and mercy on them um, in a special way, and um, I also pray for John and others who are facing normal everyday just sicknesses and allergies and that kind of stuff that we still face even in the midst of this other stuff, so... Um, Lord, I pray that you would um, watch over them. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us through other pandemics and wars and collapses and social challenges throughout the past that we've apparently been too flippant about, uh, probably in our understanding. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to kind of know a little bit about what that's like. Thanks for the resiliency of parents and grandparents and hundreds of generations before us who were undaunted by these kind of things. Help us to be that for the next generations of humans Um, Whatever our children and their children and their children face in the faith, um, Lord, we lift them up to you now, even long before, maybe long after we're gone, when they face these things. We realize now that those in the past were probably praying for us. Um, Your sons certainly did in the garden. So we pray for the future generations of Christians who will face persecution, famines, plagues, exiles, war, poverty, and all the other things that the world system and sin require. We especially say thank you to and for those who you've inspired to be the professional responders, the caretakers, the medical professionals, and others directly in the path of danger. Lord, I pray that you would help gratitude to be on our lips when they're helping us and taking care of us and medicating us and intubating us and comforting us and help us to prop up their arms as they oversee this battle in prayer. Lord, bring us back together when this is over. Uh, Help us to celebrate our status as family with one another again. And for the rest, I pray that as millions... Our staring mortality in the eyes, many for the first time, they realize their need for you. Many of these people live next door to us. Uh, they're in our neighborhoods. I pray that you would give us the faith and courage to reach out. Other gods won't do it. Other systems are going to fail them. Other wells are all dry. We need a God who reaches out to us and who offers us a way to safety from the consequences of our own rebellion, our rebellion against you. We who would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven, many of us may be rethinking that decision when both heaven and hell seem much closer today than they did last week. Father, help us to be intentional to reach out, not in our own name, but in the name of your Son, Jesus. This is our time. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, times just like this. Let us walk in them. As we do, may your rod and staff comfort us, and when it's over, bring us back to your still waters, back to the community we love so much and miss so much today. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. So, um, wow, as we're continuing to do this, and even for the next few weeks, the challenge is here. Um, it's really pretty cool. Um, last week, I was tempted to throw up all the different kind of pictures that were on Facebook, but the truth is, if, if you want to see this, last week there was people posting photos and pics of them uh, while they were worshiping together as a family in their living room and in their PJs and that kind of stuff. So, Make sure you go there and, and check that kind of stuff out. I did have a couple of pictures I wanted to reference. Um, one was, this doesn't happen on its own, and we have, here was our hospitality team last week uh, out uh, just right out there under the, if anybody came by. So anyway, that's, that's kind of <laughs> not as good as we're usually doing, but there's something. Um, okay, and then we also have, um, here's some of our team um, uh, in their posh office uh, helping make this stuff happen uh, this morning and, and last week, and so we really appreciate them. And, uh, and we also got, um, I think you've got also a thing, we, uh, we got a letter, uh, a note in the, in the, I guess, taken a picture and sent to us, um, and uh, this, was, this was very encouraging. John really appreciated that, um, that this young lady liked the first and the third song last week, and so uh, we'll be coming back to those, and um, just, just, I just love that this, the, the, the message that came through from the sermon last week was the encouragement, I will help the hurt. Um, and so what a great message for all of us. Again, there's tons of good ones out there, but for us to be reaching out and looking and helping um, as we dive back into this. And I will remind you, yes, um, our church is a healthy church in so many ways, including financially. And um, and we, we would encourage you to be using finances to reach out and bless people if you've got that, including local restaurants and other businesses and ministries and such. Um, and most of the ministries we do here, we want to continue to be free to be generous here. And so um, for you to continue to give online and that kind of stuff is important for what we're doing, um, I think so. So, All right, now speaking of living in exile, we're in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. And so the story up till now, Daniel and his three friends have been kidnapped and, and taken um, from Jerusalem and from Israel and taken to, uh, to Babylon. We talked about that. They were given new names. Their names went from being names that very clearly honored the God of Israel to being names... The Babylonians gave them that are clearly meant to honor or express fear of the gods of the Babylonians. So, um, down in verse 11, we have this situation where Daniel and his friends have decided they would not defile themselves. So, we're going to touch on that concept of defiling himself. So, we're going to pick up in verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, let's just stop there. Remember, Ashpenaz would have been someone maybe reported directly to the king. So you have King Nebuchadnezzar and you have Ashpenaz. The org chart would apparently be maybe him next there. And he's in charge of all the eunuchs. And then you would have had a steward under Ashpenaz whose job was to take care of smaller groups maybe of, of, uh, of eunuchs. And so here you have Daniel has somehow this has worked its way up to Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz doesn't want to risk his standing with the king. He's not willing to go along um, with this thought. So then Daniel goes to the steward, apparently someone who reported to Ashpenaz, um, so there we are in verse 11 The Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he says to this steward, test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. and let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So again, I mentioned last week, one of the things, and we might talk about this Wednesday during our Q&A time, but the natural temptation of the secular world to make such a big divide between secular science and secular empirical knowledge and that kind of stuff, compared to religious thought or religious philosophy or religious um, pursuits, when the truth is those are not in conflict with each other and should never be in conflict with each other, if if, we make them, if, if, the, if what we understand has been revealed to us in Scripture seems to conflict with what has been revealed to us through scientific endeavor, then that means our understanding of at least one of them is wrong. Um, it may be both, but it's at least one of them because the truth would never be in conflict with the truth, no matter how that's uncovered. And so what we're seeing here is this beautiful picture of the fact that, that Christian, the, the Christian, Judeo-Christian ethic Um, lends itself very, very naturally. A rational God who created a rational universe lends itself very well to a good scientific test here, and that's what Daniel's doing. Um, So Daniel's going to have this essentially kind of a double-blind study. He's going to have a control group, and the control group doesn't know they're a control group. They're the ones eating the king's food, and then Daniel and his friends are going to eat something different, and, and here, remember, so Daniel doesn't want to be defiled by this, we, the food of the king. We talked about last time that we don't know exactly what he meant by the word defiled. Um, it is important to remember that though Daniel thinks of himself by his name, uh, El, God, is my judge. And so it's a great reminder to us that no matter what circumstances we are in, in our marriages, with our kids, in our businesses, paying taxes, all that kind of stuff, that God is our judge. And um, it's a great reminder, Daniel's thinking along the terms of God is my judge, and no matter what the people of Babylon think, Daniel's thinking, well, God is going to be the one who judges me, and so I want to make the decision that pleases him. And he believes that not eating this food is going to please God. This also may be a little bit of a, a solidarity move on Daniel's part, a standing out with just he and his friends, um, uh, while other people, while my people are languishing, I cannot flourish, the people back... In Israel, living under slavery, my friends here, it seems wrong to me to flourish and have this good food while they're suffering. Maybe that's what's going on here. Regardless, um, he calls this, he takes this time to take this test, and he experiences something um, that we call um, a being above reproach. At minimum, Daniel is avoiding the appearance of evil. Now, this is an idea that can be abused. Um, sometimes people will talk about avoiding the appearance of evil, and then the next thing you know, it's, they're saying, I can't have friends who, um, who they have something in their life that might be inappropriate because then someone might think I'm involved, etc. And you can really get out of hand with the idea. It comes from the King James Version of 1 Thessalonians 5.22. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from every form of evil. In the old King James, it says of the very appearance of of evil, all shapes of evil. Um, And so, again, that can be abused, but it's still a good lesson to ask ourselves. Are we abstaining from even the appearance, from seeming evil, from things going on that appear to be evil or inappropriate? Um, And so, that's being faithful in the small things um, are very very important. We remember years ago when um, I think it was Giuliani or another one who had the doctrine about not allowing broken windows in neighborhoods because once you start letting not being faithful in small things, bigger and bigger things begin to kind of fall apart. And we found out to be true in our lives. We need to learn to be faithful in the small things. And this is Daniel being faithful in what seems like a small thing. Um, there was a, a group of young men uh, over a period of, of several years, actually many many years. A group of guys who we called uh, ourselves the Phalanx, and we had a pledge. And one of the lines in it um, was the phrase, above reproach. This idea of saying, I want to live a life in such a way that if people come to me and they watch my life, that they would say, um, I really, there's not much I can bring against this person. Give us a few chapters, and we will have the ultimate expression of that in the book of Daniel, maybe ever. Okay, so Ezekiel, the priest, this is how above reproach Daniel as Ezekiel, who was uh, the pre- priest and prophet, referred to Daniel as a righteous man comparable to Noah and Job. We find that in Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel the prophet. Um, speaking sarcastically um, of the boastful wisdom of another, the king of Tyre, Ezekiel wrote this, Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that's a match for you. Um, he wrote that in 28.3. Um, This is, Daniel was famous, is famous for being wise, for being righteous, for being above reproach. And this is the kind of thing where it starts. We think in terms of, I want to go toe-to-toe with someone like Nebuchadnezzar, but we're not willing to go toe-to-toe with the unnamed steward um, and to challenge them with something rational while being respectful. Verse 14, so he meaning the steward, listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So why did this work out? Um, It's natural, our temptation, and in today's world... You know, I was, I was going to make a joke earlier about I'm not feeling so great either, but that's just because I ate twenty donut holes this morning while I was waiting uh, for us to get started this morning. And so, uh, our temptation in today's world is to go, "Hey, um, this is a great diet plan. That's what this is. This is a diet. They're doing better because eating just vegetables and drinking water will be will be a good diet, and you'll be healthier at ten days." Well, okay, maybe um, depending on what the other foods were, um, but but that's not. That, that's not what we're supposed to get from this passage. We're not supposed to go a great diet plan. I mean, maybe that would be great for you. Go for it. But that's not the idea. here. This is not a dietary dietary um, restrictions isn't what makes this work. Is it that God hates rich foods? No. Is it that God even hates wine? No. That, those, those aren't the answers. This, this experience for Daniel and his friends is completely religious in nature, So for us to think that like somehow to go like, oh, this is, again, we need to write a book about the Daniel diet, fine, but don't imply that that's what made this work. It's not dietary. Maybe some of the foods were or weren't kosher. We don't know. Daniel was seeking to please God, and God worked it out. God's the one who made this work out. That's what's going on here. Not not just because Daniel has some awesome as a 13-year-old wisdom into dietary stuff, so here we have: we have respect with a godless authority. We're going to see that over and over again, the idea of learning how to be resolved and to stand with the truth while showing deference to the authorities that God has put into place. Can't ever forget that. Romans 13 makes that clear, and we'll talk more about that as we go through the book of Daniel, that Daniel is always responding well to these authorities. We see him practice out this scientific process. Well, let's test it and see if this works. But most importantly, that faith is obedience. In this situation, we have the expression of Daniel's faith, him living out his faith, is to be obedient to what he believes God is telling him he ought to do. What he believes is the right thing to serve God. God is in charge of the consequences. This is very, very basic Christian ethics, is this. We do what we believe is right. We do what we believe God is telling us is the right thing to do. Now, we need to be wise about that. We need to be incredibly humble about that because we often don't know what God's telling us to do. We need to be incredibly uh, uh, wise enough to get counsel from other people in that. But, but when we believe that God is leading us with what we ought to do, our response is then obedience. How God works out the consequences of that is not our problem. We will see that Again, maybe one of the greatest examples ever in a couple of chapters. Um, he is to live in a culture that despises his faith. So he is resolved not to join in the sin of the culture. He is in the world. He is not of the world. And that may look different for different people, but that's the idea. We know that this is God working this out all the way back from Daniel 1.9, all the way meaning a couple of verses. Daniel 1, nine, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. From verse 1 each through, so as you're watching for this theme, God is the one working in this. Even the word here, favor, as we talked about at Paul, I talking, is the word hesed. If you've done much Old Testament study, you've run into this word hesed before. There's really not a great English translation for hesed. Um, loving kindness, mercy, forgiveness, loyalty, faithfulness. This, these are all different things that this word can mean. Maybe we could wrap our brain around the idea of opulent grace. It's a combination of the goodness of God to give good gifts that we don't deserve, but it's also not just the bread and water, the minimal gifts that God could give. It is that hesed implies an opulence of good gifts. It's not just a good gift, it's an over-the-top good gift. It's, it's why it's the often see so many different words connected to that. It is this relentless, never-ending, never-running-out, unstoppable force of God expressing Himself with His people into the kingdom of mankind. It is the force that now expresses itself into the kingdom of Babylon through Daniel and his friends and gives a fighting chance for them to find favor that they have with God and he's now going to make sure that they find that favor with their leaders. That's the. It's almost like a magic word in Hebrew. It's such a, such a crazy word. We see it on a lot of our favorite verses. Verses we see, Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There again, that word, kindness, hesed, mercy, grace, to, to, that that's part of how we live out who we are. Psalm 136 um, has 26 different aspects connected to this word, Chesed. So you can go, great thing for you to do outside of this, at some point later, go to Psalm 136 and look at the different things connected to this word, Chesed. Now back to Daniel 1, Daniel one sixteen. So, they come up with a plan, they communicate the plan well to um, the steward. The steward comes back in verse 16. So, um, it works out. It says that they, things went well for them. Uh, back in 15, at the end of 10 days, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Um, again, that shows you a cultural difference. We don't think of fatter in flesh as an improvement, but that's just because we have uh, you know, several thousand calories worth of donuts in the foyer out there. So, um, we're, we're all about, we have plenty. We, so, they were healthier. They were better off. Everything was looking good there. And so, here's what we have in verse 16. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, here's what's wild. The they here is the youths who ate the king's food. So Daniel, they do this 10-day study. It works out well. They are healthier. And that was the fear. Remember, that was the fear. They don't want you looking not healthy or Nebuchadnezzar uh, might get on to me. So because they're healthier and better off, the steward took away their, meaning the other young people, their food and wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. Now, I have to assume this is the beginning of the total collapse of the relationship between Daniel and all the other wise people in the kingdom, right? I mean, this would not have been, this would not have been the way to win friends and influence people. The language here, and I don't know if it means this, but the language can imply that it literally means like took away, meaning like, from in front of them. that Like these, these guys were sitting around, they had their food, they had piled their plates at the buffet, they had their wine, they had all the stuff, and here comes the steward and he walks in, takes away plates that they've already dished themselves out, and then instead puts vegetables and water in front of them, taking away their wine. You can imagine this didn't, probably didn't make a lot of friends for Daniel and his uh, three friends. It did, however, this is important to consider, it did, however, set them up as spiritual leaders. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you've made the unpopular decision, you've made the decision that made everyone mad at you, or frustrated with you, you drew a line in the sand because you really believed it was right. Other people had to deal with some of that, and some people weren't happy with it, some people were were uncomfortable with it. But then also keep in mind that when the day comes when they are looking for someone who who will be steadfast who won't be afraid to stand up, this is who they come to. That's significant to me that they set themselves up as children to be spiritual leaders of all these others. Later when the crisis hits, we still have something to say when we don't bend. Now, was there some issue with the ones who did eat too? Um, More than one commentary referenced that maybe, literally, you might have had all Hebrew children Four of them decide to not defile themselves. Maybe several others do defile themselves with the king's food. And they're less healthy than Daniel because they were eating that food in opposition or in rebellion against God. was just part of God's discipline for them is that they didn't obey, so now they're stuck being led by somebody else. Pretty wild. I don't know about that one, but some people think that. Verse 17, as for the four youths, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Um, so, languages, skills, understanding, um, this, is, this is wild, that they are adva- had to have an advantage. We're going to hear in a minute they're ten times better than all the others maybe even than all the others who are established in the kingdom. Um, the author is considered to be Daniel, by the way, even though it's third person, this, they're still understood to be Daniel. The boys are exceptional, and even among the exceptional, they are exceptional. That's, that's who these guys are. There's, these are people handpicked to be a part of this kingdom, to take this role, and yet they stand out even among those who stand out. And Daniel takes no credit. None. Um, this This is a big deal. Verse 17, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. Now, I don't think we should misunderstand that as meaning that God kind of hooked them up to the matrix and immediately made them just know things. I don't think that's talked about here. I think Daniel and his friends worked hard. I think they studied. I think they applied themselves. I think they faced all types of challenges with this. That being said, notice Daniel takes no credit. In the end, it is God who is gifting them with this, and Daniel knows it. I think there's something really important about this. So we have a few different places in, in Jesus' teachings. We have these parables, parables of talents. Now talents, um, which is actually where we get the word talent, by the way. It actually just meant a, a monetary value. And so we, we now know, like we use the word talent because of how it was used in um, the King James Bible, the way the word talent was used, this monetary thing that God gives it to these people, and then they go and they either use it well or they don't. And, and this picture is so interesting. The reason I think it's important for us when we ask ourselves, why does God gift us? Um, why does God make some of us athletic? Why does God make some of us... Um, give us the opportunity to develop businesses or have wealth? Or, or why does God give us the opportunities that He has given us? Why does God even just make us Americans? Like, what, what is that about for us as Christians? It's always important to remember that God doesn't... If, if you're beautiful, God didn't make you beautiful so that you could admire your beauty. Um, there's some purpose, there's some value in that that God has in His kingdom that, that you, get to, you get to experience and practice because you have this gift. Um, if you're super, super smart, the idea isn't to then take those smarts and bury them, or just enjoy them yourself, or just use them to criticize other people. That's, that's cheap. It's easy to do it. It's cheap. It's not very valuable. The, the idea would be, how do you take those gifts and apply them in His kingdom? And so, because after all, they are His gifts. That's important in, that par- in the parable when Jesus tells it every time. It isn't that these guys are investing their talents or their money. It's that they're investing the money of the master, of the king, of, the, of their leader who is stewarding them with some gift. And then they've got to figure out how to apply it and live it out. And I think there's a lot of different ways to understand those parables. There's a lot to it. But I think one of the ways to understand them is the gifts we are given, no matter what they are, whether they're natural talents, whether they're um, genetic advantages, um, whether they're being born in a place, being born to a certain family. Whether, what, it doesn't make any difference. Any good gift that we have that comes from God, I think is something that is meant to be lived out and intentionally lived out with the constant understanding that God gave it. That, in my mind, is super important. Whose talent is it? it's His. So we we're, we're now have the opportunity, the, the thing for Christians as we face something like we're facing now with the, with the virus is to be, we get to ask ourselves, okay, what now do we have to share and how do we share it? We can serve in, in ways that now stand out. We get to do this in our neighborhoods. And again, don't, don't be looking for the dare to be great opportunity um, you know, the, the, One of the cable news channels probably isn't going to call you because you checked in with the, the people in your neighborhood who need help. They don't do that kind of stuff. That's, that's not interesting to them. That's good news and that doesn't sell apparently, so they don't care about that. That's not who you work for though. You be faithful in the small things like Daniel is talking, like Daniel's practicing and showing us, you be faithful in these small things. Us be faithful with these little things that we can do, checking on one another, checking on neighbors, that kind of stuff. And then maybe if it fulfills God's plan, then we may go toe-to-toe with Nebuchadnezzar someday. Um, but that's not how that plays out, to be, to be faithful with the little things God has given us. Man, that's, that is where it is at in the book of Daniel. So, verse 18, At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Again, this isn't because they're so awesome. It's because God has made them awesome for this. Daniel and his three friends would point back every time to that. That's the, that's the strategy, that they're always going to be going back to that idea. But let's, let's, so let's look at this. At the end of this time, this probably means at the end of the three years of training that we already learned about, so we're fast-forwarding to the end of the three years of training, and then next week when we dive into chapter two, we're probably going to be going back a little bit, back to during those three years, different opinions on that, but... Very likely. So at the end of it, they, have, they get to have their, um, I guess their, their thesis defense. They get called before the king, Nebuchadnezzar himself, and they're all seated out there in front of him somehow, and he's throwing questions at them and asking them questions and demanding in- insights from them and understanding from them. And at the end of this test that they have, these four stand out, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. This phrase... One, they managed to stand before the king and be successful at it. But some people picture this as saying, essentially this means that these three, these four, kind of like had their desk in the throne room. That that's where they were seated. that's where They, they were his immediate counselors. They were the ones he went to first. They were the ones who had spent hours in the throne room with the king himself. Talk about your, your influencers. I mean, these are some of the go-to. I remember years ago, it struck me as interesting, years ago, um, when George W. Bush was president, and he would go run every day. And he ran three miles every day, and he was fast. He ran three seven-minute miles every day for the first few years of his presidency. And the only person on his staff, I mean, think back to his staff, yeah the only person on his staff who could keep up with him was Condoleezza Rice. And so everyone would complain about the fact that Condy got 21 minutes with the president that other people didn't get. And they would complain, and of course, allegedly, Bush would just say, like, well, I mean, keep up, right? And so, and, and so she was the only one on his staff who could keep up with him. Yeah, you're thinking now back on like Donald Rumsfeld and others being like, yeah, no, they're not going to. So, um, but but it, was, it was intriguing to me. It reminds me of this. That's, I think the idea here is these boys were able to keep up with Nebuchadnezzar, who was probably a brilliant man, and so they were able to keep up with him, so he kept them around, and they got extra influence with him. Um, that's, that's the picture, I think, that's going on here. Um, he's dealing with decision-making overload, Uh, These are advisors to help. The others aren't in the same league. Is it because the others were frauds? Is it because the others were dependent on demonic power? Which can be impressive in a pagan kingdom. But here you have four who are dependent on Yahweh himself. And that power certainly is the the great power. Here's what we would assume. Um, Many, by the way, this is going to show up in the next chapter. Many, if not most of these advisors would have been among Nebuchadnezzar's fathers, advisors. These would probably have been the magicians and the sorcerers and the others um, who, who would have been um, advisors of dad, probably older men. And now here you have this young king, and we, we kind of know from history how that tends to play out, is that these older advisors always try to hold back this young king, and, and they want to be the ones in charge now, and, and they're going to kind of keep, keep him in place. So we're going to get to see throughout, this, throughout the story of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar have a few um, little showdowns with his own advisors. Here now he has four young new advisors who he can pull in, who he can trust because they, they didn't work for dad. They don't, they don't have any um, uh, connections, political connections to other people in the kingdom. Um, this young military leader, he gets the opportunity to have these four who are ten times better. And everybody else. And I'm guessing that means the others didn't like that very much. Especially if they're the ones who didn't get to have they started having to have vegetables and water. They really hate Daniel's apparent lack of ambition, and yet his competency. Their whole identity is about moving up in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, and now these four kids leapfrogged all the way past them into the throne room himself. And that's that's going to create problems. But for how long? Is Daniel in this kind of a role? For how long is Daniel in the court of Babylon? Shockingly, he is in the court of Babylon after it's no longer Babylon. It says in verse 21, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So let me wrap up with a little history lesson here. Um, the Sumerians were a culture that lived, that existed 3,000 years before Christ. They had developed a written language called cuneiform. That was in many ways where culture, modern culture, began. After 1,500 years of brutal Assyrian rule, various groups fought back. We talked about this week one. Um, they destroyed Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. A new king took over and founded the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Soon after that, Nebuchadnezzar II, who is kind of one of the stars of our book here, took over the form of an Assyrian Empire and exerted control. He was, I think we have a, a graph that shows some of this, and again, the dates aren't perfect on this. Even at this level of history, we still are plus or minus a little. But you have Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he's going to have been from about 605 B.C. to 562 B.C. So remember, it works backwards. It's counting towards zero. Arul Marduk, um, or Amel Marduk, is the next in line, and he served from 559 to 556. Then there's another one who I don't think is on the... Oh, La, Labashi Marduk, Um, he serves for a little bit of time, uh, like one year, a few months. Nabonidus serves 556 to 539, and Belshazzar, you're going to get a little more of this when we come back to it. Belshazzar, who we're going to hear about, um, he served from 550 to 539. Belshazzar and Nabonidus overlapped, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we get there, but they overlapped, which is actually fascinating that they overlapped. Um, The Babylonian kingdom falls while under the leadership of Nabonidus and Belshazzar, and Cyrus, um, who is the leader of the Medo-Persians, takes over. He takes over in five fifty nine and serves till five uh, serves five thirty nine is when he con- he's he's the head of the Persian Empire until from five fifty nine he takes in five thirty nine he takes the Babylonian Empire as well. Um, it's fascinating how that happened. We will talk about that in a few chapters, how exactly how this played out. But here's what's wild. How above reproach was Daniel? Daniel was so above reproach. Daniel was so gifted by God and so faithful with his gifts that when you have not an election where you have a turnover of presidents, but in a war you have one nation conquer the other nation, utterly destroy the other nation. What would you suspect typically happens there to the advisors of the defeated nation? Most of them are going to get wiped out. Of course they are. In America, they fire them. <laughs> they don't, we don't behead them, we fire them. But can you imagine if you had someone like a Condoleezza Rice or someone, imagine if they served in three or four different administrations of different political backgrounds. What would that say about that person? They're they're such an asset that no one's willing to get rid of them. And it seems that Cyrus is even, Cyrus brings, allows Darius, who we'll talk about Darius, allows his general Darius to keep um, Daniel. And some people believe that at some point Daniel was shifted from Babylon all the way back to to the Persian in part two, actually be an advisor for Cyrus. He was so brilliant and so gifted that they shifted him over to work under Cyrus himself. This is, this is a, an amazing picture of the idea of a man who serves God so faithfully that different pagan leaders, the ones of have any wisdom at all, can see the value in it, can see the value in keeping him around. Again, as we're talking about living in a culture that is less and less friendly to our faith, um, how do we manage to stand by our faith while also having an impact in the culture? That's part of why we're studying Daniel is to see such an amazing picture. And one of them is by being above reproach, is having integrity. We will talk about integrity in more detail coming up uh, in the next few weeks. But man, what a, what a powerful picture Daniel is giving us that, that we tell the truth um, we speak the truth. We live the truth in such a way that, that people can see that. So, um, probably plenty for us to work through and to wrestle with from this chapter already. Um, I want to pray, and then um, John, you're going to be coming back up, and John's going to make his way back up, and uh, and we can sing together. Our assumption is that God's Word is speaking to us. Again, remember, um, we are here, we are united together because this building is, um, is only is only sacred because of the handful of believers who are here. We're, there are more than two or three of us gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ, and He is here with us. His Spirit unites all of us in our homes, on our back porches, wherever you are right now, um, uh, engaging with this. Um, just just open our heart. We need to open our hearts and minds to God, connecting us in ways that we reach out, as Paul said. We aren't social distancing. We're just physically distancing. Make sure you are engaging socially, reaching out to people, especially those in need. Um, so be faithful to engage in that. And then send in questions for Wednesday and, uh, and other stuff that we're going to be trying over the next few weeks. Um, I'm sure proud of this team who you've put together to, uh, to lead and serve. Um, so be, continue to pray for them. So let me pray and ask the Spirit to lead you um, during this time when we, uh, we invite you to listen to what God's speaking through his word. Father, once again, I want to thank you. I know that there are plenty of people um, in, uh, in fire stations and in police cars and, and at hospitals and other places, Lord, that are working this morning and serving, um, not just here but all around. Lord, I, I pray that as believers, and we'll be reaching out to those around us in new ways, maybe in ways we hadn't. Lord, I know there are plenty who are afraid. And that as we take natural, healthy, normal precautions, um, that in the midst of that, planning is is totally appropriate. Investing wisely is totally appropriate. at the same time, Lord, we aren't infected by fear. and We aren't infected by anxiety. And we feel those at times, but the truth is, Lord, um, those don't dominate our hearts and minds our faith in You, the courage that You can give us um, to live not in fear but in faith even when we don't understand what's going on and as the world around us is panicking, when we are able to be the city on a hill unshaken, shining out, a safe place. Lord, I pray that we will figure out how to do that well in this time so that people will see that and they'll get to know You through us and they'll never be the same. Lord, these lives come and go on earth diseases come and go and sickness comes and goes but your word stands forever and you've created us as eternal beings so i pray we'll be reminded to invest in eternity in one another through the power of your name we ask it amen